Hi folks, welcome to another instalment of the World War Nation podcast with myself, World War II explorer, Lawrence Waller. Join me on a journey of discovery into the past and present as we set out to explore the history of the Second World War. Our travels will take us from the home front to the battlefields of Europe and beyond. Travel with us as we revisit historical locations and walk the battlefields of World War II. We'll be tracking down wartime artefacts, speaking with veterans and historians alike, and paying our deepest respects to this remarkable generation, as we set out to try and help keep this period of history alive for future generations to learn from, and to try and tell the personal stories of those who bore witness to these monumental world events. It's going to be a long journey. In fact, it's going to be a lifelong journey, and I want you to join me on what will be a great adventure. If you wish to help support the World War II Nation podcast, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash worldwar2nationhq, or support us at Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash worldwar2nation. The links for both of these are also in the podcast bio below. Thank you very much for your support. Anyhow, without further ado, let's dive right into our latest instalment of the O Group here on the World War II Nation podcast. In this episode, we'll be turning our attention to looking at the experience of the men and aircraft that made up Troop Carrier Command as we chat with historian Adam Berry to discover more about this unit's war and discuss the various Allied airborne operations they would play a crucial part within. And I think it's fair to say, Adam, that you want to touch on quite a few of the uh, modern misconceptions and maybe even mistruths, it might be fair to say. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Um, it's been something that I've researched now for a number of years and um, it will probably come across that I'm quite passionate about it. Um, and yeah, as much as anything, it's just, you know, uh, taking every opportunity possible to to try and give these guys a little bit of credit um, where it might otherwise be lacking, really. So, Well, let's dive right into it. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about Troop Carrier Command, it's, you know, its formation and I guess the selection of the crews and their training process? Yeah, so um, so Ninth Troop Carrier Command, which was the the command that um, that did the D-Day drops um, and the, the subsequent uh, missions in the ETO from that point forward. So Market Garden uh, Operation Repulse, uh, Dragoon in August '44, and of course Varsity at the end of uh, to, well, towards the end of the war. Um, they were formed in September 1943, and it was all in preparation for what became D-Day. Yeah, so they were formed in September '43. Um, at that point, they didn't really have many aircraft, um, many groups. It wasn't until sort of February, March '44 that they were uh, very much up to strength. And the reason was um, they only had two wings flying operationally. In or there was only two wings flying operationally in um, in the ETO or in the Mediterranean theatre prior to September '43. One was the 52nd Troop Carrier Wing, which contained four troop carrier groups, and they um, were responsible for um, some of the uh, airdrops over Sicily and Italy in 1943. They were transferred to the UK at the beginning of 44, around mid-Feb 44, um, and attached to what became known as 9th Troop Carrier Command. And then there was the, uh, the 51st Troop Carrier Wing, which contained two groups that um, didn't leave the, the Mediterranean theatre until much later in the war. They weren't involved in any of the major airborne operations um, in the sort of northern Euro uh, European theatre. Um, so they had to formulate, uh, well, create, um, kit out, for want of better terminology, with aircraft and, and men and equipment, um, 10 other troop carrier groups to bring 9th Troop Carrier Command up to the required number of troop carrier groups that they they saw as necessary to carry out what was being already being planned for um for d-day for overlord so um that involved quite a bit of work um and and interestingly enough it's it's where one of the the misconceptions kind of comes into play um in for 1942 and 1943 when the troop carrier groups were deployed for dropping paratroopers over um, over North Africa for Operation Torch, um, and of course Sicily and Italy, they were very much rushed to theatre. They they had not been given the time that was really necessary to train for what lay ahead, um, and and primary 
in that was a lack of training time with the airborne forces. And as with anything, um, training, cooperative training between, you know, a ground force and an air force in force scenarios like that was, was incredibly vital. One of the more outspoken individuals in terms of the lack of training um, up to that point was uh, Major General at the time, Matthew Ridgway, who was the, um, the commanding officer of the 82nd Airborne Division, who in a, a post-Sicily report uh, was relatively outspoken about the lack of um, training between the troop carrier forces and the airborne. Um, and he stated in an, on a number of occasions that in order for future airborne missions to be successful, considerably more successful than the, the missions over Sicily turned out to be, for example, they would need, you know, at least two, three weeks, a month of solid sort of air ground training with the troop carrier forces. And they never got it. Um, before the missions over Sicily, the 82nd didn't get that. They were, again, um, rushed into a combat operation um, and the troop carrier forces that deployed them were not given the opportunity to train with the airborne. Um, and the unfortunate result of that is that it, it, it created this perception that the, the air crew were pretty low standard air crew um, or that they had graduated fairly low in their classes um, in the States when they were training to become pilots or training to become air crew. And that's not true at all, really. I mean, the, the American Aviation Cadet Programme, um, it, it, you know, it didn't select somebody for a certain role based on their ability or inability to fly an aircraft correctly or to perform, um, perform it in a certain way. It was very much based on a candidate's physical attributes and also where the necessity to send them was at that time. So earlier on in the, in the war, obviously, when a lot of the um, heavy bomber groups were being formed, because, I mean, early, very early in the war, the, American, um, the, the Americans, the Air Force in particular, believed that the way forward, the way of winning a war, was, was simply in the saturation bombing of enemy factories um, you know, enemy infrastructure to destroy them from within, basically. Um, they weren't interested in, um, in paratroopers, in gliders, in having the ability to drop them in combat. They didn't think that that was going to be necessary. Um, so for a long period of time, the priority was getting those that had the right physical attributes for flying big four-engine bombers like the B-17 and the B-24, or alternatively, smaller medium twin engine bombers um the other priority was 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 providing aircrew for those aircraft so that they could build their bomber forces up um but at the same time um you know they they, they soon began to realize that unfortunately that that's not um not a feasible way of winning a war um they were trying to avoid deaths on the ground and um you know it it, it, it became obvious to them that i wasn't going to work out so they did start to put together troop carrier groups, but again, they weren't given the attention that was necessary. You know, so the aircrew were, were well trained. They were, in terms of flying the aircraft, they they weren't, you know, low grade candidates. They, they didn't finish bottom of their classes. No evidence to suggest that, you know, a troop carrier pilot finished at the bottom of his class. Some of them finished at the top of their class. Some of them were excellent pilots. And some of them um, finished higher than pilots that went on to be fighter races, for example, or pilots that went on to complete 30, 40 missions flying a, a heavy bomber. So um, that's not really where, where the issue came from. So it's, you know, one of the things I've often argued with people is that there's no evidence to suggest whatsoever that these were low-grade pilots. Um, the, um, the American Air Force um, Aviation Cadet Program had a number of um, intelligence tests at the beginning of the course, um, which they they had a, a better name for than I've just been given. Um, but they tested the you know the ap uh, mental aptitude of, of candidates as well as their you know again their intelligence. And believe it or not, the air the guys who actually ended up being becoming air crew were guys that that, that scored relatively low. Um, those that scored higher ended up fly uh, ended up flying as navigators or training to be navigators or didn't even become aircrew at all. They became 
ground crew um, or, you know, guys that worked at the various sort of wing or group or command level HQs doing things like meteorology um, that you would, you know, you would think you would need, you know, some greater levels of intelligence for. So, um, so yeah, that's one of the, one of the myths that we, you know, we've, I say we, uh, uh, myself and my co-author Hans, and a number of others that are very much into their troop carrier stuff have tried to dispel over the, the last couple of years is that you know these guys were, were were pushed towards transport aircraft because they weren't very good pilots there's just no evidence to suggest that over sicily and italy sicily in particular um there was a serious issue in the quality of the navigators um but again it is it's simply down to the the, the time they were given to train for the missions that lay ahead or to prepare themselves for what was a you know an incredibly important job um i remember doing a a video with our friend paul woodage on um uh, air power over normandy back in uh, june where and um and uh, the historian sean claxton made a great point which is that bomber crew if they miss their target one night they go back the following night and try again with the airborne it, particularly with a troop carrier from a troop carrier point of view they get one shot at it and if it and if it and if it isn't successful for whatever reason, then primarily they are the ones criticised for it. They are the ones that are that are to blame for it. And nine times out of ten, there's always considerably more to consider to factor into it as to why misdrops took place. And what do you think is sort of the the reason for some of these misconceptions and mistruths that you've touched on there? I mean, I, I know you mentioned about the potential skill of the air crew uh, coming into question there. Do you think there's sort of like a, um, obviously when you do look at sort of air, RAF bomber command crews, that kind of principle, when they obviously they're going through their training and they're put in for sort of pilot training, and obviously they don't make the grade, they sort of get pushed down the runs as it were. Is it almost that kind of misconception that the same would apply in terms of when the American Air Force with Troop Carrier Command, that it's, the actual branch of it sits within that kind of structuring as if you know if you're failing a test you get pushed put down and down and down yeah i mean there's there's undoubtedly an element of that um but primarily the the misconceptions about the, the, the troop carrier performances they they go back to you know you know almost d plus one really i mean um the, the experiences of, of the paratroopers on the ground relating their stories of their drop over D-Day to one another. And, um, and then, you know, in particular, the post-war years when historians like SLA Marshall and um, Cornelius Ryan were writing their, their books, which became, you know, almost the go-to Bibles of, of D-Day. Um, they, you know, they based all of their assertions, sorry, on the misdrops on D-Day, on the experiences of the paratroopers. They, neither of them interviewed a single troop carrier pilot after the war. Now, in my opinion, that's flawed history. You, you can't base, you know, an assessment on the outcome of a certain mission whilst only viewing it from one particular point of view. And it's a problem that, that still persists to this day. You know, it's, um, there's, there's an awful lot of love for the airborne and, um, you know, and I'm, this is not me saying they don't deserve it. I mean, I'm a, you know, I, I, I'm a big, big lover of the 82nd Airborne Division. I was born and raised in the areas of the Midlands where they were camped prior to D-Day and have grown up with stories of them around the area. And, you know, I, I idolise them, really. But there's this sort of loving with them. And it creates almost this perception that, um, that they were the most important. And, it, you know, it may be true. They were the most important facet of, of an airborne mission. Um, and you would you would be led to believe by some of the posts you see on on Facebook, for example, and Twitter and the other social media platforms, that people believe that C-47s were almost flown by robots. You know, there's no consideration at all taken on the, the guys that actually flew them for real. Um, you know, people post about the aircraft belonging to, for example, the 101st Airborne Division. You know, because they dropped the 101st Airborne Division, you know, they were flown by paratroopers, essentially, um, which, you know, as we know, is 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 not true. Um, but it, 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 it just seems to be this sort of um, cascading 
um, effect of of people's belief that the the, the troop carrier aircrew weren't of any real great importance that is a real struggle to sort of slow down if that makes sense it's a real struggle to push it back in the right direction and say actually you know these guys were they weren't poor pilots they weren't poor co-pilots navigators uh, radio operators whatever they they when they were given an adequate amount of training time they proved to be very 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 good at what they did and not only that you have to take considerations over the the rationale behind putting men that are low grade but you know might be low grade pilots or low scoring pilots in their classes putting them in a position where they are the ones dropping what are considered to be the most important divisions to the allies in the eto you know where is the sense in in doing that um, and I think that there comes a point in the war, and it's particularly after the Italy um, missions, where I think finally Allied commanders realise that in order for it to work out, I think it takes a while for them to realise that, that that putting a load of paratroopers on board an aircraft and telling them, you know, telling the pilots to drop them here, isn't it's not as simple as that. And I think it took them a while to realise that there has there has to be. Um, an adequate level of you know training time and you know ample opportunity to drop the guys they're going to drop for real in exercises in you know um, um, rehearsal missions so that they know full firsthand avoid you know aside from being you know obviously shot at what to expect so um so yeah well let's touch on that um Let's go back to sort of the early days. I think, as you say, it's really a massive learning curve. They're chucked in at the deep end, and a lot of lessons are definitely learned from the way I've perceived it from the first the first two operations, definitely from Operation Torch, like you touched on there, and and ultimately, obviously, Operation Husky. There's a lot of ramifications for that for the, you know the guys that are flying the aircraft themselves during the mission, and obviously the ramifications in terms of doctrine thereafter in preparation for. Obviously, I guess eventually Italy, uh, September '43 kind of time, and then beyond that, uh, June '44 for Normandy. So, can you sort of talk us through um, Troop Carrier Command's experiences and involvements in those early missions before D-Day? I mean, for Normandy. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, Torch was the first um, the first instance of U.S. paratroopers being used in uh, an, in an aggressive way, basically, but um what's almost ridiculous about it is the fact that and of course it was it was born out of necessity more than anything but the the it was it was a unit that was known as the second battalion of the 503rd parachute infantry regiment and they later became they were later redesignated or almost redesignated whilst they were in the air in fact as the 509th parachute infantry battalion and they were the most experienced they ended the war as the most experienced combat um well airborne battalion um, in the in the US Army, they actually made five combat drops during the Second World War, but they actually flew from bases in the UK. So they flew from um, from bases. Uh, uh, I think memory was one. Um, Older Maston was another. I think. Um, but for those who are interested in Band of Brothers, um, E Company of Five Hundred Sixth or the Second Battalion Five Hundred Sixth were not the first airborne unit that were, that lived in Oldbourne. Those guys from the 509th were actually billeted in Oldbourne uh, nearly two years before the 101st even arrived there. Um, and they flew from bases in, in southern England. And that is a long, long, long way to fly in a pre-war aircraft whilst maintaining an what would have to be an incredibly accurate course so that you know that you're making the right IPs are right initial points for turning points so that you can hit the, the drop zone dead on. The levels of concentration that that takes is enormous because it's a multi-hour flight and you've also got in the back of your consciousness the fact that you are involved in what is the first aggressive use of American paratroopers. What eventually happened was that the 509th was scattered 
basically all over the place. Um, there's suggestions that no two air, no two aircraft drops their sticks in the same place, basically. So you can imagine the 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 dispersion the dispersal of, of of the paratroopers was was so vast that by the time they'd actually figured out where they were and had, and had reorganised as a battalion, um, ground forces that had landed on the on the coast had already captured their objectives. So it um, it was a massive disaster, basically. Sicily was a was was a similar thing. Um, heavy winds took the, the series off course, and the, the navigators weren't experienced enough and didn't have enough training to 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 make the ad- adequate corrections for it. Um, we've also got the um, the the disastrous friendly fire incident over Sicily, in which the U.S. Navy was given what were technically speaking outdated commands about where the, the troop carrier series would be flying. And the result was 20, 20 plus C-47s were shot out of the sky by their own Navy um, on what was was um, technically Husky 2, the second drop of the uh, 82nd Airborne Division. Um, elements of the British Airborne as well were also fired upon by friendly forces um, over our, further to the east. So um, it, 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 it emphasised a lot of things. It emphasised that as I touched on earlier, that the pilots and the aircrew needed more training. It emphasised that there had to be far better cooperation between the ground forces, not just not just the airborne the airborne guys, but the navy and the army, um, and not just of this you know, not just of the same nation. Uh, nation. You know, anyone that was was going to be in the area that day for a, for a mission, you know, Royal Navy, U.S. Navy, British Army, U.S. Army, you know, everybody. There had to be far better cooperation between them in terms of planning what was going to happen. Um, so, yeah, huge ramifications of it. And of course, you know, what, one of the biggest ramifications at the time was that it pretty much destroyed all confidence that higher command had in the use of, of airborne divisions. So Eisenhower in particular was very much, was very sceptical of the use of airborne divisions in a, in a combat role. He thought that airborne divisions should be broken down into a te- technically regimental combat teams, smaller, more manageable units of men. And it actually took an exercise in the States called the, the Knollwood Manoeuvre at the end of 1943, which Eisenhower was present at, and Matthew Ridgway, the commanding officer of the 82nd Airborne Division, had flown back to the uh, US to, to be present, which involved the 17th Airborne Division, who, of course, was still training at the time, um, elements of some independent airborne units and tr- um, formation troop carrier formations that were being trained at the time under the 53rd troop carrier wing. It took them carrying out this this Norwood manoeuvre to convince Eisenhower and some other high-ranking generals in the US Air Force and in the US Army that the airborne division could be used successfully. Um, and again, it's another catalyst in what makes those at the really higher highest echelons of command to sit back in their chairs and go right well if we are going to do this if we are going to use these guys then you know training absolutely has to be paramount you know they can't afford you know particularly on d-day you you cannot afford for guys to be dropped at the sort of distances that some of the guys that were dropped over north africa for example and sicily were being dropped because if that had happened, then you know the landings in Utah, on Utah, for example, may well not have been the, you know, the I was going to say the cakewalk, but of course it wasn't. It wasn't, but you know what I mean. It what it was relatively straightforward in terms of the objectives that the Fourth Infantry Division were given for the day. Um, you know, had had the airborne been scattered, you know, all over the place, and I know they were, and I know people listening will say, well, they were, but in terms of you know as how they were over Sicily and Italy, sorry, uh, North Africa and Sicily. Um, it was it wasn't as bad as 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 the history books will have you believe. Um, so yeah, huge ramifications to the way that the, the, the initial missions are, are carried out. And of course, from an airborne point of view, one of the key things that that comes out of it, and the Americans have got the Brits to thank for it, is the establishment of uh, airborne pathfinders. So guys that will mark the DZs ready for the main serial of men. 
which is something. In, but until um, until some uh, members of the 82nd Airborne Division was was sent to um, to train with the British, was not really a consideration of the Americans. Um, whether or not they truly believed that they had the ability to um, identify a drop zone without the need of pathfinders, or whether they um, you know realised eventually that um, that pathfinders helped to uh, not guarantee a mission success, but increase the chances of it being successful. I don't know. But, um, yeah, so huge ramifications across the board, really. I mean, Cicely, for me, kind of, from what you said there, kind of epitomises the low point. That, you know, these guys have been not really trained sufficiently for the task at hand because it's it's kind of a complete learning curve chucked in at the deep end. As you say, expect to do a job where... Um, in situations where they're really not fully prepared, so it, probably from a navigation point of view, where they're integrated enough with other aspects of the mission, aka other arms being fully notified in the case of the friendly fire incidents, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a really yeah. interesting story that always sticks with me for Sicily, and I suppose the airborne slash troop carry command cooperation aspects is that of Alistair Jock Pearson's account over Mount Etna. Do you know the one I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it seems a lot of lessons were essentially taken on board and learned from that point onwards. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the one of the things that um, one of the things that Sicily helped in particular was the um, the process of how navigators were were um, provided to the troop carry groups because one of the biggest issues, which was not fully rectified by the time D Day comes around, was simply not enough aircraft had navigators on board. So um, if, a, if, a, if a serial strays off course or a number of aircraft stray off course, because of the formation, the way that they flew their formations at the time, B of B formations, it tended to be, but if an aircraft strayed off course, the aircraft on its wings would follow suit. Um, and of course, it might be that none of those three aircraft have got a navigator on board, which presents a massive issue because at that point, you're relying on the co-pilot to figure out where they are, where they're going, to try and identify the drop zone. And of course, they're not really trained to do that. So, um, yeah, again, it's, it's, it's a case of trying to, um, to emphasize, you know, the need for navigators, but of course, navigators are really hot property because they are very well-trained individuals in terms of what they do in the States for their training. And they're needed by so many different branches of the air force. You know, navigators didn't just go on troop carrier aircraft, they were on bombers, you know, and they were on, um, you know, aircraft that flew um, maritime patrols and things like that. You know, they were needed almost, you know, everywhere, you know, every branch of the Air Force. But it goes back to a similar issue that the RAF had during the Battle of Britain, which was this constant battle with training pilots quickly enough. And, you know, for the US Air Force, without question, up until probably after D-Day, their biggest issue was training navigators quickly enough. So when did Troop Carrier Command actually start to arrive in Britain and where were they eventually calling home? Where do they operate from predominantly? Nine Troop, nine troop Carrier Command, as I say, were formed in, um, in September 43. They're actually, they were actually formed under a guy called Brigadier General Benjamin Giles, who never actually went on to command them in a... Um, in a combat operation, but he was excellent um, from a from a, a logistical point of view in terms of establishing a force and building a force up and allocating the the right sort of levels of manpower and equipment that were needed um, across uh, across a command such as Ninth Troop Carrier Command. So he was in command of Nine Nine Troop Carrier Command from September forty three up until February forty four when it was taken over by Brigadier General Paul Williams. Well, he was Brigadier General at the time. He became Major General shortly after arriving. Um, but he he oversaw every combat mission that the command carried forward up, up until the end of the war. Um, and he's an individual that, that draws some criticisms for, um, for you know, things that took place around the Market Garden sort of period. But generally, Paul, Paul Williams was a, was, a good, was a good commander and was an individual that, um, despite his rank, was, you know, more than happy to put himself in a position where, um, you know, he could conceivably have, have not returned from. Um, 
to give uh, listeners a, a breakdown um, of, of how the command was formed, 9th Troop Carrier Command was a was a tactical support unit of the 9th Air Force, the, the US 9th Army Air Force, which is where it got its numerical designation from. Um, and it had within it th- uh, uh, three troop carrier wings, the 50th, 52nd and the 53rd. Um, and obviously they each had um, a number of groups contained within the wing. The 53rd and the 52nd had five groups and the 50th had um had four so the 50th troop carrier wing were headquartered uh, at, a, at a building called red haze which is um which was actually destroyed in a fire unfortunately um but it's just immediately west of what is now exeter airport um but during the war raf exeter was a troop carrier airfield um, elements of the 101st airborne division flew from exeter on d-day um but anyone anyone that happens to go down um go down that neck of the woods Red Haze is, um, or what's left of Red Haze, can still be walked around. The foundation of the building can still be walked around. And that was the 50th Troop Carrier Wing headquarters. 53rd Troop Carrier Wing were um, based close to London, uh, almost immediately west of London, really. Um, and their headquarters was in a building called Bowdown House, which um, was immediately, and I mean immediately, north of RAF Green and Common. Um, literally so close to the airfield's perimeter track that they built a driveway from the building that linked onto the airfield's perimeter track so that the um, commanding general of the 53rd Troop Carrier Wing, a man called Maurice Beach, could very easily just drive straight onto the airfield, basically, from the uh, the wing's headquarter building. Uh, Bowdown House got some history to it, actually. It was... Um, it was originally where the, the King of Norway exconded to um, um, when he fled Norway, uh, the, I think in 1940. So it had been a royal residence for, um, for two years. Um, it was then taken over by the 51st Troop Carrier Wing, who were the guys that carried the, um, the, the, what became the 509 to North Africa in uh, 1942. So they planned all of their their um, involvement in Operation Torch from Bowdown House. And then when they left, it remained empty for a while. And then when the when the 9th Troop Carrier Command was being was being built up in terms of manpower and forces and groups, um, they were given Bowdown House or given the use of Bowdown House as a headquarters building. And Bowdown is still still there. Um, it's a private residence now, um, but it was for a while a wedding venue. So up until very recently, you could quite, you know, quite easily um, go and go and see the place. But now it's private residence. Um, the fifty second troop carrier wing were the group were wing that was considerably further north. Excuse me, in the UK, they were based um, at RAF Cottesmore. Um, so as opposed to being uh, given a nice country house somewhere as a headquarters building, the um, the fifty second troop carrier wing were billeted at RAF Cottesmore which was shared by the 316th Troop Carrier Group. And actually, Cottesmore, for a short time, was home to 9th Troop Carrier Command. They were, they were headquartered there as well. Uh, I understand Cottesmore was chosen because it was, it's a 1938-built pre-war airfield, but it's got, as opposed to it just being a load of huts and tents, was actually you know, a well-established airfield with brick buildings and married quarters that the officers could be billeted in and you know, all of that sort of stuff. So it, it proved a pretty good uh, airfield for having the um, the command headquarters at. Um, so obviously the five groups within those wings were all stationed relatively nearby. Um, perhaps most interestingly is that from March 44 onwards, from March 44 until September the 19th, 44, 9th Troop Carrier Command were headquartered at a building called St. Vincent's Hall in Grantham, which was previously the headquarters of the Five Group Bomber Command and was famously the building that the Dambusters raid was monitored from um, in May 1943. So the, the, let's say, the important history of St. Vincent's didn't end after the Dams raid. It didn't end when Five Group left the building. It's... Um, it was handed over to 9th Troop Carrier Command and from the um, operations block that was 
that was the temporary operations block that was built there. Uh, they monitored all the air activity during um, during the night of June 6th and June 7th. Um, and they also planned the vast majority of what would become the the airborne the airborne missions to Normandy. Another building that's worth a mention actually is, is a place called East Coat Place, um, which was in London um, at, a, a, at a site which is now almost completely gone and been turned into a, a huge housing estate um, called RAF East Coat, which was um, a, a relatively secret place during the war. But East Coat, uh, East Coat Place as a building, it still exists, it's still there. But it was an advanced headquarters for 9th Troop Carrier Command and 38 Group Royal Air Force. And from that building, they, they, they cooperated in planning the air part, or so the, 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 uh, the airborne side um, of, of the invasion of Normandy. So again, that's a, a pretty historically significant building. Um, we put a couple of great photos in our book of um, when uh, Paul Williams had a birthday in uh, April 44. There was a big party there and uh, a lot of the sort of high-ranking airborne officers um, across all of the airborne Allied airborne divisions were invited and and it was great. The picture's great because you can you can almost sort of you know just sit there looking at the pictures and going, oh, that's that's him and that's him. And you know, as we spoke about it on on Twitter a few days ago, uh, uh, Brigadier James Hill um, and his his quite standout jawline, and he's instantly recognisable in one of the photos that was taken around the back of East Coast Place. So it's great to look at pictures like that and 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 realise the, the significance of them. Um, and there's great photos from Paul Williams' collections as well of, of that were taken on the interior of the building of of them literally planning, um, you know, what became you know probably the most important day in modern warfare. So um, yeah, so that's where they were. We touched on that Brigadier Speedy Hill, uh, Six Airborne Division um, Brigade Commander, obviously going to be jumping into Normandy uh, on D-Day. Let's let's talk about that. Let's yeah. focus in on the training and the preparations of Troop Carrier Command coordinated i guess with you know the six airborne division the 82nd and 101st that we make these jumps are we starting to now see that in that build-up to d-day the new doctrine being applied whereby you've got troop carry command and the airborne units that are going to be making those drops on d-day working together and carrying out practice jumps yeah absolutely in fact the very first um command level exercise planned was with the 6th Airborne Division and it was carried out on the, on the 15th to the 16th of March 44 which was with the 6th Airborne um, and that was a para drop um, so so yeah the the um, you know obviously there are plans in place and at that point the, the you know the Allied commanders are, are clearly aware that there's a distinct possibility that at some stage in time American troop carrier forces will be dropping uh, let's say Commonwealth paratroopers um so they take you know they, they spare no time in um in planning training exercises with with british airborne um it brings me actually to to something that i'd like to bring up which is um the the, the, the troop carrier forces were actually really highly complementary of the way that the the british approached an airborne mission whether that be a um a training exercise or a live a live mission. In fact, the three, the three sixteenth troop carrier group who were based out of RAF Cottesmore, who had got vast experience in airborne drops, they'd done a number of missions over Sicily, and they'd dropped the eighty second over Italy as well. Um, they actually, you know, made a point of the liaison between the British airborne and the American troop carrier forces in their um, in their war diary. And, and I'd like to read read a section to you now. Um, they said close liaison supplied by the British 1st Airborne Division was an important contributing factor. In the field of paratroop work, we have much to learn from the British in the way of liaison. Any airborne unit which is expected to furnish troops in practice or actual drops should supply an officer whose sole duty it is to work out all of the details with our operations and S2 staffs over a period of weeks rather than days. By working together in this manner, the success of a mission is virtually assured assuming the weather is favourable and there is no failure of equipment. What's interesting about that quote is that the, the, the final section, really, by working together in this manner, the success of an airborne mission is virtually assured, assuming the weather is favourable. 
Um, looking at records, I would say at least 90% of the exercises that were carried out with the British Airborne Divisions were considered to be highly successful. And that is a lot better than the earlier, earlier training missions with, with the American Airborne Divisions, for example. So I, I think there's a great deal to be said about the way that the, the British provided liaison with the groups. And in, in the case of the 52nd Wing in particular, who were based, as I say, in the uh, sort of link, the East Midlands area, Lincolnshire, Rutland, um, Northamptonshire area, um, they were so close geographically to the campsites of the 1st Airborne Division that the 1st Airborne Division's liaison officers were given their own offices on the airfield. So RAF Barks and Heath, which is a great example, 61st Troop Carrier Group deployed the um, elements of the 1st Parachute Brigade over, um, well, near to Arnhem on Market Garden. Um, they were, they had um, sites on their airfield that were less than a mile away from where the 1st first Parachute Battalion were billeted. So those guys could essentially you know, walk onto the airfield just by crossing a few fields. So the importance of having them so close and the fact that the liaison officers were given their own facilities on base where they could spend as much time as they like liaising, chatting, discussing with the troop carrier pilots seems to have made a huge difference to how the how successful the airborne exercises were in the UK. Um, but it brings me on to another thing, really, which is the, another misconception is, of course, the lack of training, which is often cited as one of the reasons for the American, American misdrops on D-Day. Um, and it's <laughs> really not true. Um, even, you know, in some of the 82nd records, they state that, you know, practice drops were few and far between. And it was often, uh, you know, the weather was often used as an excuse, which I'm sure is totally legitimate. But. Actually, when you when you look at the the records between the fifteenth of March forty four and the twenty seventh of May nineteen forty four, nine troop carrier command organised and executed thirty three joint ground air training exercises in the UK prior to D Day, um, and just to give you an example, um, they they span all of the all of the airborne divisions that were in the UK at the time. So first mission, 6th Airborne Division, then 82nd, 6th Airborne. There was one mission on the 21st of the 22nd of March, which was 6th Airborne, 101st and 82nd, essentially recreating a, uh, uh, um, a miniature version of what would happen on D-Day. Um, and when you look at the timings of them as well, um, 20, 2130 hours, uh, 2100, 0400, 0200, they're all carried out at night and they're all carried out at night for a reason, because obviously, you know, the, the drops on D-Day were carried out at night. So they're preparing themselves quite vigorously for what lays ahead. And it's worth pointing out as well that this is at a command level. So these are training exercises that were carried out, um, that were organised at the very highest echelon, echelons of nine troop carrier command. The wings were afforded every opportunity to organize exercises on their own time, essentially, which they did. And at the same time, the groups could do the same. So generally speaking, the troop carrier groups were in the air as long as the weather was good enough to allow them to be in the air. Um, an example that, that I, often, I often use is um, the 315th troop carrier group who were based at RAF Spanho in Northamptonshire. Um, were a bit of an unusual um, troop carrier group when they were assigned to nine troop carrier command in so much as they only had two squadrons. Now, typically a troop carrier group, well, universally a troop carrier group has four squadrons of aircraft and, and, and men. The 315th only had two. And as of the end of April, beginning of May 1944, they still only had two. They had two new squadrons formed which was the 309th Troop Carrier Squadron at the end of April and the 310th at the end at the beginning of May 44. So just over a month before D-Day. Um, they, they had a, a guy called Smiley Stark who was a, was a captain before the two squadrons were formed. He was promoted to the rank of major and given command of one of the new squadrons. He got all of his men um, 
you know, in a uh, into the base gym at Spano, and and basically just said, look, you know, we are expected to be uh, the very best here. We're going to be carrying and dropping paratroopers of the 82nd Airborne Division, guys that have been through, you know, two combat missions already, guys that have got a very important role indeed, well, will have a very important role on missions to come. So we really need to knuckle down and, you know, use this month or, you know, have a lot, obviously we didn't know it was a month at the time, but use what time they had to get to the levels that were necessary. So in the month of May, the 309th Troop Carrier Squadron, which was part, as I say, part of the 315th, um, they threw 17 formation flight missions. Um, and the only days that they missed in May were either because the weather was too bad they were either they, they might alternatively have been flying missions that had been organized at command level or because they'd flown nighttime formation flights they had um allowed their aircrew time to uh, to rest so they they basically did you know um uh, classroom lectures instead on those days but so 17 17 days in may they were up doing formation flights in, and on one of those days they did two formation rehearsal flights and essentially what they were trying to do in those flights was uh, learn the um, the behavior of the aircraft in tight formations and to, had to learn to counteract the way that the aircraft undulate in the air so that they can keep a tight formation um, now what's most amazing about the 315th is that they were assigned to drop um, the first battalion of the 505th parachute infantry regiment over normally on d-day um, the only regiment across both American Airborne Divisions, the 101st and the 82nd, but had made a combat jump before. So um, pretty uh, pretty important guys. And, and these guys had got the, um, the objective of capturing the Murderay crossings uh, uh, west sorry, of, of St. Mary Glees. So pretty again, pretty important objectives for D-Day. Um, they were, by some margin, the most successfully dropped battalion on D-Day. Now, for a group that had two squadrons that had existed for barely a month before D-Day, to carry out a mission to that sort of quality is no fluke. It happened because they trained themselves to the bone. So it's another example of how um, the, the lack of training being used as an excuse for the misdrops on D-Day just doesn't really hold any water. They were flying as often as they could. You kind of summed up that uh, famous army analogy, isn't it? Sort of train hard, fight easy. There. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they 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 did what a, what a troop carrier group is designed to do um, in terms of the the first battalion of the five or fifth, for example. They they were they were able almost entirely as a battalion to to form upon the, on the correct drop zone. One company in particular, A Company, whose job specifically was to, was to target the bridge at Lafayette, were able to form on the drop zone almost man for man as a company. And within 30 minutes, had gathered all of their equipment, had organized a, um, an, order of, uh, an order of movement, basically, and were on their way to their objective. Um, so the, and the 315th, gave them that opportunity by dropping them so well on, on the correct drop zone. So the training that the 315th carried out, and the fact that Smiley Stark, who, bearing in mind, 315th, although they were they were quite an old group by that point, they actually, actually left the States in 1942. They'd not been used to drop paratroopers in anger before, but only carried out, um, essentially, supply flights and search and rescue flights in Greenland. So bearing in mind that here was a man, Smiley Stark, who would never have the opportunity to command a troop carrier force for a major airborne mission like that, for him to, to, to take a step back and, and understand and realise that his men were being given an extremely important job, you know, it just goes to show the sort of, you know, the sort of personnel or the sort of, um, the sort of men that were, you know, in those positions. So, yeah, they were, they're, they're a great example of how experience in terms of having dropped paratroopers in combat prior to D-Day, um, again, can't really be cited as a reason for 
they miss drops and and again as an example of like you say training very very hard to to perform their job to the very best of their ability thanks for listening we hope you found it of interest if you enjoyed this episode please do feel free to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review we hugely appreciate your support we should be sharing more information about various things mentioned in this episode of the o group on our social media channels you can find this info and drop us a message with any questions by following us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube at World Water Nation and also Instagram at World Water Nation HQ. And if you wish to help support World Water Nation podcast, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash HQ, or support us at Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Nation. The links for both of these are also in the podcast bio below. Thank you very much. Obviously, also a big thank you to Adam for taking the time to chat with us about this fascinating topic. Part two of this conversation will be out very shortly. Anyhow, until next time, this is Lawrence Waller signing off for this episode of the World Woods Nation podcast. <laughs>